I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and hello, Lynx. Hello. Hello. <clears throat> hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You smell so good today. Oh, thank you. I mean, I already told you that, but I want everybody to know that Lynx <laughs> smells so good. I appreciate it. Just like David Bowie. Ooh. Yeah. Hmm. Freshly showered. Well, welcome to the show. Today we are going to be discussing the book Touching from a Distance, which was written by Deborah Curtis, who is the widow of Ian Curtis from Joy Division. Mm-hmm. I've seen the movie a long time ago. It was fantastic. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting the details from you. Yeah. Um, Lynx was flipping through the book and she was like, I really want to read this, but I don't read for pleasure anymore. (laughs) It's a lot of work uh, going through all these books and going online and searching for, you know, more information. Like all of our time is spent on whatever episode we're working on that week. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, so the movie that you mentioned is called Control, Mm -hmm. and that movie was based on the book from Deborah Curtis. So just because you saw the movie like I did, um, and, and if you, sorry, if you were like me and you watched it over and over and over and over again and over and over again, (laughs) then you'll still be able to learn something from this episode because there are some... Some big differences between the book and the movie. As usual, films tend to jazz things up a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so it'll be interesting to talk about the parts that they actually did jazz up. Mm -hmm. So just um, before we get into the episode, I think it's important to just let everybody know if if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with um, Ian Curtis, uh, he did commit suicide um, at a very young age. And so we will be talking um, about that and about everything in his life that pretty much led up to that point and about some of the things that he was going through. So just a little bit of um, just a just a bit of a hey, just, just want to let you guys know a heads up. Just want a heads up. Want to look after you. Um, 
Go on. Okay. <laughs> um, I used to own this book and I lent it to my dad. And so I had asked my dad not too long ago, or maybe a couple months ago, because I was planning on doing this episode. I was like, do you still have the book about Ian Curtis from Joy Division? And he was like, no, I don't have that anymore. And I was like, did you like it? And he was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, and I didn't know why, because I had seen the movie a bunch of times, but I only read the book once. And when it was when I was in university and I reread, and when I reread it, I realized why he didn't like it so much. And it's because it's really depressing. Yeah. It's really sad, mm-hmm. but not in the way that you might think that it is like you might think that it's really sad because you have all of this like sympathy for Ian Curtis Mm -hmm. actually you read the book and it tells a completely different side of him that the movie only skims the surface on the the movie really really um idealizes like it's you know the romanticism Of 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 him and especially his relationship with Anik. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was actually a really awful. A lot of the things that he did to, to Debbie. Debbie. Yeah. And uh, her book doesn't come off as one that's like um, angry or like any kind of like blaming or it's just matter of fact. Yeah. She just presents these like he would this do this happened. and he would do this yeah. and and so on so I, I went back and I read it again and I went oh this is an absolutely sad book yeah and uh, I was telling a co-worker about it yeah I was reading this book Debbie Curtis Ian Curtis's wife and he was like a Debbie Downer <laughs> and I was like oh yeah it's true every woman named Debbie poor like, Debbie hates that yeah. <laughs> or as, as they call her in Maxfield Debbie Okay, so right as you get into the book, there's a foreword by a man named John Savage. And right off the bat, he says, Ian Curtis was was singer and lyrics writer of a rare mediumistic power. His songs and performances for Joy Division conveyed desperate, raging emotions behind a dour Manchunian facade, like Manchester Mm -hmm. Manchunian. Um, But I really was attracted to Joy Division and in particular to Ian Curtis because of that mediumistic presence that he had. The eyes that are so clear blue that are just uh, almost seem outerworldly or the way that uh, he would work himself into an almost trance. Like it was one of the first, uh, when I was in university, artists that I saw who really just seemed to leave themselves. Yeah. His uh, stage presence is unbelievable. Yeah, so yeah. she talks a lot about the uh, like escalation of that stage persona, mm-hmm. um, and pretty much in terms of the sicker Ian got, the like sicker his dancing got, but the more people Were wanted to it. it. Yeah, yeah. Isn't so not always the way. So many artists. Uh, we have a sick fascination of like watching people destroy themselves. Amy yeah. Winehouse is another great example of that. They, no one could look away, but it was sort of obvious that something is off. Yeah, yeah. And Ian Curtis was always attracted to that from a very, very, very young age. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that I had read to you when we were at Mass Hall the other day is I had the book with me, and I opened up the book and I went, "Listen to this." Um, in the intro, again, it says, this book also tells us something that is ever-present but rarely discussed. The role of women in the male, often macho, world of rock. Deborah Curtis is the wife who supported her husband but who got left behind. Mm-hmm. Yep. It really wraps it up. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do here with muses and stuff. Mm. Telling their stories. Yeah. So um, Debbie talks a, talks a lot about Ian, of course, and she said he never did anything in halves. Any interest became a vocation. Uh, like we were just saying, all of Ian's heroes, well, most of them besides 
David Bowie and Lou Reed were dead. His fascination with dying young was ever present even in the beginning of Debbie and Ian's relationship. She thought that he was going to grow and mature out of that as he started to realize some of the things in life that, you know, like marriage and maybe children and some of the things that life had to offer. Mm -hmm. Um, He even bought a red jacket like James James Dean Dean. (laughs) in Rattle Without a Cause. Oh, okay. Yeah, and this is a fun fact that I did learn, (laughs) the only fun Fun fact (laughs) in the whole book, um, that he had gotten backstage at like a David Bowie concert, and he had asked for autographs from uh, David Bowie and Mick Ronson, and so he was quite a groupie groupie? himself. He idolized them until he emulated them. Amazing. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So he was really obsessed with this certain level of fame and he really pursued it. Debbie often called him like, you know, mentioned that he was like an actor and he saw himself as one in a play and everybody else around him were just a part of that that were there. He was very much always wanting to be the center of attention. Uh, He always wanted people to be looking at him. He was he liked to wear makeup. He liked to experiment with clothing. She said that besides music, his other love was clothing and buying clothes which you think is kind of weird because every picture you see of ian curtis he's in the like drab green i feel like it was only like right (laughs) at the beginning there like a showman yeah flamboyant like he really wasn't but apparently he he was he was just like that at the beginning one of the first times they hung out he was wearing this pink little um fuzzy jacket that belonged to his little sister interesting i guess uh he really did want to be bowie yeah yeah he did want to be bowie and then there's also something that I'll get into a little bit later about my, like, questioning of his sexuality a little bit. Okay. Okay. Um, so, in terms of Debbie, before she met Ian, she had a pretty chill childhood uh, growing up in the 60s. She said it consisted of looking for birds, and birds nests and feeding orphaned lambs. Oh, that's... That's so cute. Yeah. Um, in 1972, before they met, he Ian was hanging a, out a lot with his friend Tony Nuttall. And you'll remember this from the movie if you've seen it. They were t- taking a whole bunch of household drugs um, and sniffing all kinds of solvents to the point where both of them ended up having to have their stomachs pumped. Oh, lovely. So they would go to, um, like, seniors' homes and spend time with old folks, and one of them would one of them would excuse themselves to the bathroom, and the other one would, um, like, steal the medication, uh-huh. and they would just get ripped. Um, and, you know, it makes me wonder if, like, the early, you know, messing around with medication that caused, like, that causes paranoia and um, apathy and blurred vision and all that kind of stuff, if it could have contributed to his eventual, mm-hmm. like, you know, mental health decline. I'm sure it didn't um, help. Du- like, dual personality to the point of, like, uh, Debbie and his friends would call him, like, a depressive schizophrenic. Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, like, it could have been a thing that triggered from a young, from a young age. Um so he and Debbie were together in 1972, 1973, and they'd start to go to parties together. And there's some pretty funny stories about the weird parties that they would go to. Like, they'd all get into showers together, like a bunch of them. And I have um, stories like that. Yeah, oh, <laughs> really? <Yeah>. I don't. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> of course we do. We all do. Oh, I mean, speaking of, another reason why I was really into control and really into Ian Curtis in the time that I got into Joy Division and everybody was because um, I was kind of in a relationship with a traveling musician as much as you can be who has a girlfriend and I was very young and it was very much that sort of uh, like romantic dark feeling yeah you know what I mean it's interesting how that's so romantic and desirable when you're like 1920 and you think that's like attractive and then you grow older and you're like what the hell was I doing yeah yep so, um, 
So when they were together, she learned very early on that he was obsessed with Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, and she said that Ian had no interest in living beyond his early 20s. Untrue. Oh, he was 23 Yeah, when he killed himself. Yeah. She, she said that she took it with a pinch of salt. Mm. Mm. Um, she spent a lot of time with Ian at this point and talks about his inexplicable, inexplicable temper tantrums. Um... Yeah, he would freak out at parties and people would have no idea where his anger would come from. And all of a sudden, he would just be putting his hand through a window. Oh, I thought you were going to say he just like suddenly was calm again. No. And then I again wrote repressed homosexuality. And I mean, there's a part of me that thinks like almost everybody is repressing homosexuality because I'm like a part of me is like, everybody's a little bit gay, though. Like, it's just, (laughs) Lynx is kind of over there going. Well, I mean, I know people who would disagree with that. So do I. I I'm just saying this is my opinion. This is what I think. You don't have to agree with me and you don't have to disagree with me. I just have a thing where I'm just like, "Mm." I agree with you in the sense that it's hard to believe that everyone is like a 10 on the straight meter. Oh you know? yeah. 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 Um, and Hey, if he grew up admiring people like Bowie and Lou Reed and stuff uh, that absolutely, he, he had to have questioned that. Part yeah. Of growing them. up in London in like yeah. the late sixties and early seventies where like, even if he wanted to be like, ha- mm, it, yeah. it couldn't happen. Like not really. Unless he got out of Macclesfield. And yeah. Anyways. Um, if you have any thoughts about Ian Curtis's repressed homosexuality, <laughs> please feel free to chime in this conversation. So he did have another part of him that was gentle. He possessed a thoughtful sincerity, which shows the double personality that he did have within him mm-hmm. early on. Um. Debbie did not like drawing attention to herself. So on the other hand, when he's experimenting with the makeup and the scarves and all that stuff, she really didn't want to be the center of attention. And she thinks that that's one of the main assets that she had for Ian, that she was an accessory and there was little danger of her ever outshining him. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, what if what Ian was attracted to in Debbie if, if he was so out there and she was so inward. Yeah. But that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, when they really started dating, he convinced her to not go to school. He started displaying some, I would call it, abusive tendencies um, in terms of really starting to control her, uh, not allowing her to wear skirts. She wasn't allowed to wear makeup anymore. Um at a Lou Reed concert in 1973, he dragged her around and he even brought her into the men's washroom oh my God. with her. So he was very, very possessive. Yeah. And when she was working at lunchtime, he made her go home to his parents' house for lunch. So if her lunch was an hour, she spent half of it commuting to his mom's house. If you're a woman out there and your man is trying to control what you wear and everything it's not it's not worth it <laughs> like i'm not opposed to your mother making me lunch but yeah exactly it has to be for the right reasons yeah, that's not love that's manipulation that's control. it that's a good word yeah control yeah there's a lot of weird control stuff happening yeah. here um he started cutting her out of her friend groups no but he wouldn't really include her in his own either yeah yeah um, then on the other hand, he would read her Oscar Wilde poems and cry. Yeah. He would yep. take her on long, beautiful walks, and they ended up um, becoming engaged. Yeah, those beautiful moments the women tend to idealize and say, well, this is the real him. Yeah. Like, maybe I can change him eventually. Maybe he'll grow out of it. Yeah. 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 It's a cycle. I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Yeah. Um, um, for Valentine's Day in 1974, he wrote her a poem about a dream he had of her walking on a lonely beach, deserted, 
which ended up coming true in June of 1980 when she was on holiday with her parents after his death. So he kind of had the... A premonition? He did, yeah. Uh, They got engaged April 17th, 1974, and he chose all of the people to attend the engagement party, which excluded a lot of her friends. Yeah. Her family was there, but when she ended up dancing with her uh, uncle, he got so mad that he ended up throwing tomato juice on her face and all over her dress. Oh, my God. At their engagement party. Oh, my God. That's when you break up. That's when you don't get married. Yeah. But then the thing is, too, like we get late, like we're skipping ahead a little bit. But a part of the tumultuous relationship he had with his wife and then with the inclusion of Anik, that's where Joy Division got their fuel. That's where the lyrics came from. That's where the gloomy atmosphere came from. And atmosphere. Let's see how many Joy Division songs we can name just (laughs) in casual conversation (laughs) during this episode. Um, And so, you know, Debbie really takes a look back at everything and it was almost like he he crafted this persona this myth of himself to be this certain kind of person with of course very real and very severe mental health and then eventually the epilepsy so it was almost like this like which came first and everything fed into everything Mm -hmm. um in the book i'm reading in an episode that's gonna come up in the future uh it's also um a type of abusive relationship, uh, like manipulation and all of that. And it, it makes me wonder, a lot a lot of rock stars, a lot of um, artists do have like a, a troubled uh, psyche, if you will. And uh, yeah, I th- it's an interesting thing. We tend to... We, we do tend to romanticize that. Like, they are a great artist because they are troubled. Yeah. I wonder if by having that sort of thought, we're actually doing them harm by not taking it more seriously. And they tend to surround themselves with people who indulge them when they are like that he was yeah she does mention that he was very involved that ian was in a fairy land Mm -hmm. and they just let him stay there exactly so every time he would get into this mood they would just compare him to one of his heroes and he would like it and then be pacified exactly exactly and in the end that that's not good for them or the people around them and i feel like people who really idolize ian curtis which i i know that there must be oh absolutely yeah right and people who and even i did and even i like just watching the movie and just getting the impression of him based on the movie and like oh poor him they might not like what we're talking about because we're because debbie opens up this whole other can of something that is like okay well actually this is what was going on in this it's hard to hear that your heroes aren't perfect, but they are human. And and like we said, like a lot of artists are troubled. They have dealt with a lot of issues. And, and he was 23 years old yeah. like in 1980. How, do you process how that? is like what it even is that world anymore? Yeah. I just watched an Instagram story of a Backstreet Boy playing golf. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Uh, okay. Um where were we (laughs) okay so he was dancing at their engagement party and refused to dance with debbie he danced alone and his movements were reminiscent of his later moves that were uh to become his stage uh present so this was a good year even before he was diagnosed with epilepsy Mm -hmm. but this was starting to come out and who knows like they were probably drinking a lot fueled by alcohol but debbie's debbie's family definitely thought that he was on drugs yeah if you haven't seen ian curtis uh perform just google or youtube it's incredible it is yeah yeah but now that I know, like, almost how much damage it caused him every time he did that, it's, like, it's almost, like, difficult to think about and oh, yeah. watch it. And Anyways. Um, 
She said that they went to a wedding in Liverpool and he forbade her to dance. She did anyway, but on the way home on the train, he forced her to make love. She said, by now I was used um, not only to Ian's jealousy and possessive attitude, but also his particular brand of retribution. I felt he was reestablishing ownership. Jesus. And on that note, they were married on August 23rd in 1975. She says, initially, Ian was reluctant to marry me in a church. He predicted I would be struck down as I walked down the aisle. Wow. I know. What the fuck? That's like, that's a sign of mental illness right there. The night of the wedding, he told Tony Wilson's first wife, Lindsay Reed, that he thought about canceling the wedding because he knew in his heart that he would eventually be unfaithful. People who know that should not get married. If you if you already like decided that you're gonna be unfaithful, yeah, you should not get married. Or like have a conversation like, so you know, a couple years down the line, <laughs> we want to open this up or what? Yeah, yeah. Let's be a progressive. Two thousand and seventeen couple. I don't know. Okay, so she took care of everything, his finances, and as long as he had cigarettes. He might as well have just been living at home. Like mm-hmm. when he was at home, he did nothing for himself. When he lived with his wife, he did nothing for himself. Um, he had no intention of learning anything practical. He didn't want to get his driver's license. He was just, yep, just wanting to be a rock star. That like I'll give you, I'll get, we'll get you money someday. We'll make sure that I can pay for this someday. Like, mm-hmm. Just, just wait. So. Uh, they saw Iggy Pop in Manchester in 1977, and everyone was freaking out, jumping on seats, dancing around, and she said he was surprisingly still. So you can imagine that he's watching that, probably enjoying it, but probably not because he wants to be there so yeah. badly. Or maybe studying. Studying. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a good way to think of it, too, because Iggy Pop's definitely a... Uh his uh on stage dancing and everything uh, there's definitely some ian curtis there like you can see he he got some of his moves from me yeah yeah um she talks about after having an argument she says he turned around brought two long hands up and put them around my neck just tight enough to render me immobile so it's the only time that she talks about physical abuse but it's happened Mm mm-hmm okay so it was around this time that the band got together. Peter Hook, Bernard Mason. Oh, I must have got that name wrong. Uh, and Terry Mason. Uh, Bernard Sumner, I believe his name is. And Terry Mason. Uh, Tater, Terry later became the manager, but then was replaced by Rob Gretton. And I remember there's that funny scene in uh, Control where he's like, what's your name? Terry. Terry what? Terry Mason. And he was like, Terry Mason? I'm not heard of you. Oh, fuck. I did that. That was brutal. I shouldn't <laughs> cut it out. Links. <laughs> cut that out um but uh yeah so rob gretton came in and he ended up being their manager eventually but on may 29th 1977 warsaw played their first gig at electric circus uh the buzzcocks were also on that bill nice so they got a pretty good review from enemy who said that they were still learning to play their instruments but that i liked them and will like them even more in six months time Hmm. yeah i love enemy magazine I used to read that a lot. Um, the only place I could ever find it was at the downtown bus terminal. Oh, really? Yeah. And it, they don't sell it anymore. So I don't uh, know if there's anywhere in Toronto that sells Enemy yeah, Magazine. I used to get it at a big bookstore by my place, but that's not there anymore either. Oh. Bookstores are just... Obsolete. Yeah. It's so depressing. Just but. take your Instagram and your Kindles and your open marriages. <laughs> just... <laughs> Anyway, let's, let's go back to 1977. <laughs> I can't take it. Um, did you see actually on Instagram? I don't know if her Twitter handle is like 60s groupie or like we follow so many great groupie accounts, but her bedroom is like straight out of the 1960s. Oh, yeah, I saw. And she just got that awesome like makeup table and her room is like painted this pale pink. And we, I love uh instagram for that there's so many amazing uh dolls out there that uh are just like living and breathing they're like i i don't care that i'm in 2017 my bedroom looks like i'm in 1960s but i'm gonna instagram it so 
get to like live the past and the present coming together to make something not quite as good as (laughs) (laughs) okay um so joy division yeah ian started writing in his room uh his blue room he painted blue and debbie said that he would close himself up in his room smoking and drinking coffee and that she didn't mind the situation we regarded it as a project something that had to be done neither did i inspect his work i never doubted that his songs would be anything but superior so she was very very supportive um they'd be at parties and this is like before joy division is like playing any shows but she did mention that um she would find him like kissing other women and it was a sign of things to come pretty early on in their marriage um his onstage antics were quite volatile he would rip off tiles and throw them at the audience Mm -hmm. their first record came out in december of 1977 and their last gig as warsaw was on new year's eve of 1977 there was already a London-based band called Warsaw Pact, and then the Warsaw name was based off of the David Bowie song. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the essential ingredient for any new band name was that it had to be shocking. Yeah. Um, Ian told Debbie that Joy Division was what the Nazis called female prisoners kept alive to be used as prostitutes for the German army. Mm-hmm. She thought it was gruesome and tasteless, and she hoped that no one understood the true meaning the true meaning um with the way that they dressed the sleeve of the ep the umlaut that they used um pictures of bernard that made him look like a member of the hitler youth um there was a yeah there was a lot of suspicion about what kind of uh beliefs this band had towards no doubt (laughs) um there was one part of the book I didn't make a note about it, but then I just kind of wrote it in my notes that Debbie does allude to Ian's racism, uh, like especially when he was drinking. Oh, yeah. So of course, like that's these are some things that are not really well known facts about mm-hmm. Joy Division or Ian Cur- Curtis. And I feel almost like, like I was saying, for those people who are very devoted to him and yeah. who idolize him, that you know, like he idolized other people. Yeah, they. I feel like that kind of part of him was very just brushed to the side. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly would never dream of calling my band Joy Division for someone who is, like, extremely against all that. I don't think anyone would. (laughs) It's not super shocking that he's, like, slightly racist yeah and i'm saying slightly i don't know i'm just hoping it's slightly not that that makes it any better though no no for the record i shanti am against hitler and for sex work i just want to absolutely i just want to let that be known um their first gig as joy division was on january 25th 1978 that's my birthday nice and that was exactly 10 years before i was born um so just want to say not actually feeling that great about it after we just talked about the whole (laughs) Hitler thing, but moving on. Um, Even though they were only paid 60 euros for the entire band, people were still taking their set list. Like People were like, oh, this band is going to be big, so I'm on it. Um, Interesting. They decided to have a baby because Ian was very much... Any, he, he had a hard time saying no to anybody. So he had a hard time with confrontation and he had a hard time with anything like that. So if he did say something shitty about somebody, they would accuse, like they would ask him about it later and he'd be like, I never said that. Hmm. He's one of those guys. He put a lot of blame on a lot of other people and he never took a lot of responsibility for his own stuff. But Debbie wanted a baby and so he wanted to make her happy. So he said, okay. Um, Peter Hook said that one of the problems with Joy Division is that they kept their relationships at arm's length and so did not share any happiness. It was almost like with the band, it became unfashionable to be happy. Hmm. So working with Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton, um, Rob, or sorry, Tony Wilson financed a factory sample EP, which had the songs Digital and Glass. Um, in 1978, when Debbie became visibly pregnant, Ian had his first epilect- epileptic fit. A lot of his independence was taken from him at this time, as you can imagine, because they're confused about like when, why this is happening. Yeah. And so every time he went somewhere, like including going to the bathroom, he had to tell somebody or yeah. tell Debbie. And of course, this would not help anybody's kind of depression. No, no, absolutely 
Yeah. Um, the band was becoming more and more in demand, and in 1979, Ian appeared on the cover of Anime in the famous green coat smoking the cigarette, mm-hmm. which I believe is the cover of the book. Um, Bernard had been aware of Ian's manic personalities, which got even worse with the medication. His moods would fluctuate between ultra-politeness and blind rage. One minute he was high, the next he was crying. Did, did Ian know the band members before the, creating the band? I believe they all ran in the same circle, but but he had put out an ad for a band, somebody answered, and then there was the three of them, or, yeah, the three of them until they found their drummer, and that was the last bit of, uh, of Joy Division coming together. Gotcha. Um, no more questions. (laughs) Just kidding. I I didn't do a great job answering that, but, um, she does talk exactly about how the book is formed or how the band is formed in the book, but I, moving on. Um, um, yeah. So Debbie did everything she could, she possibly could to help him organize his life and reduce any stress that he might be under. Um, she said that his dancing had become a distressing parody of his offstage seizures. His arms would flail around like a winding, uh, like winding an invisible bobbin. And it seems like it was kind of a what came first, the chicken or the egg, because he danced like this at the engagement party years ago. It was but in now him. It was in him. And so if you, I don't know if you feel one way or another about like illnesses and stuff that mm. maybe that they lay dormant yeah. and that eventually like it's just a matter of time before something triggers them anyways. Interesting. So, now that he's taking this medication, his moods are even worse than before and it doesn't seem like when she was listening all of, listing all of the medications that he was taking that he was on any kind of antidepressant or mood stabilizer and anything like that because I'm not sure really how common that it kind was of stuff diagnosed was back then, yeah. then. Like he didn't seem to be getting very much help. Um, he doesn't sound like the type who would go to the doctor and say the words I'm depressed anyway. Yeah, or maybe even tried to make an attempt to be better because yeah. it was very I'm an artist early on that he yeah. that that's that suited him. Yep. Ne- like it was later on that everybody in the band and Debbie would say that Ian's melancholy was staring them in the face. Mm-hmm. Unknown Pleasures was recorded at Strawberry Studios in Stockport in April of nineteen seventy nine. Um, and whether it was intentional or not, she says the wives and girlfriends had gradually been banished from all of the mo- all but the most local of gigs, and a curious male bonding had taken place. The boys seemed to derive their fun from each other. Hmm. So no more girlfriends and wives. Yeah, and people have to remember this is like they're like twenty, right? Yeah, they're they're young, so. Now, that's an interesting question because, of course, we know that this happened with the Beatles. Um, It's happened with a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of of bands giving the aura of availability. Yeah. But would you ever not like a band, say, even like in your younger years? If I knew they had wives? If you knew that they had wives? No. Does that make a band less appealing? Not to me. Does do single band members make bands more appealing? It's an interesting maybe. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think w- gr- little girls are gonna have their fantasies whether or not they're married. Yeah, I mean, there are fan fiction out there about people who are dead. People who I mean, that doesn't make them less appealing. Like that's to, true. Yeah, what you Although want them is- to be in your fantasy. <laughs> Let's talk about Instagram again. Um, there has been times, I think, where I've gone on, like, a band's Instagram and then found, like, an individual band member's account and then gone to check and been like, so how often is the girlfriend or the wife present in, the in those and pictures? And it's just interesting what people uh, tend to share online in, in terms of that it's kind of stuff. Interest, it's a different world now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Cynthia Lennon wasn't posting pictures and... Debbie and Debbie. none of these women were. Poor Debbie. So their daughter was born. 
Um, and because of his epilepsy, Ian was very reluctant to hold his daughter, even under supervision. If Natalie was crying, uh, Debbie had to serve Ian first, um, almost as if he was demanding his turn for attention from her. And she referred to him as acting like a jealous child. Yeah, two babies. Yeah. Um, the band was better than ever, and this point had a serious following. Um she there was a time at a local gig where she stood admiring them in the audience thinking that the depressive image and lyrics were all a part of the act she was self-satisfied she was happy to see him but happy in her ignorance which she she stayed in that for quite a while in quite a different in in many different ways um ian continued to have many grand mal attacks as much as uh four in one night she does talk about their idyllic nights together that they spent walking Natalie and their dog Candy. There were nice moments in between. Yeah, there were. Yeah. Mick Middles reviewed a factory gig comparing Joy Division's songs to an orgasmic experience. He said, During the set's many peaks, Ian Curtis often loses control. He'll suddenly jerk sideways and, head in hands, he'll transform into a twitching epileptic type mass of flesh and bone. Suddenly he'll recover. The guitars will fade away, leaving the lonely drummer to finish the song on his own. Then, with no introduction, the whole feeling will begin again. Another song, another climax. Wow. So then the groupies started. Of course. <laughs> um, but before we get to that, Ian wasn't making a lot of money and would do things for factory records. So their band was with them, but then he would also kind of work for them to pick up money on the side to make extra cash because the royalties were being split four ways. Yeah. Even he had though, a family to support. And he had a family and he was doing a lot of the um, lyric writing, of course. And then the, yeah, that like that guitar sounds good with this but still four ways and again it could go back to the like well ian had a hard time standing up for himself saying no yeah he just didn't yeah and ultimately like it'll come out too where he's not putting his family he's not putting his family first mm -hmm. um the groupies oh yeah so by this point wives and girlfriends were totally banished um Young female fans uh, were showing up backstage a lot, hanging out with them. And she said by August of 1979, Ian was famous. The husband and father ceased to exist. Any plans that he made, he made them with Rob. Yeah. Meanwhile, she was at home just trying to like make sure that his life was good and that he had his shelter and he was taken care of and that their baby was good. And It's... It's a foolish thing to get married so young, in my opinion. I know some some people do get married young and stay together, and that's fantastic. But f the majority, uh, you you are still a kid at twenty, even though you feel like an adult. Yeah, you, you are a kid. Enjoy those years. Yeah. So she says that it was okay for the girls, the girlfriends, and the wives to boost the numbers in the early days by being at the shows. And it was taken for granted that they would iron clothes, pack cases, and make excuses to employers. But now it seemed that they were bad for the image. Mm. Jugs were becoming more accessible too. Um, and at this point, all of Ian's spare time was spent reading and thinking about human suffering. Hmm. It's interesting, the, the wives not being allowed... Like we were talking about, uh, it's interesting because it it really brings out the fact that these men were concerned about the image. It's not like all about the music, man. Like the image clearly mattered to them too. If they're thinking, well, maybe we can like maybe people will like us more. Like we we just pretend we are not married, and yeah, you know. I mean, otherwise, these guys would have done that thing. They would have had the girlfriends and the wives at age 19 and 20 and stayed with this one person pretty much their whole lives or half their lives. And then maybe they would, like, I don't know, marry one other person. Like, that was the typical. And now they're realizing, like, that's we're rock stars now. Yeah. And that's a thing. So that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Um she started to feel disdain from him, not able to communicate between them at all, beyond what kind of sandwich he wanted to eat. 
And she said it was around this time he got the lead singer syndrome. Just like not showing up places and just, you know, whatever. I'm the most important person in the room. Yeah. Um, They played a show in Leeds and someone in their book wrote about the show. It was one of those rare occasions that the band's wives and girlfriends were seen at a Joy Division concert. But Debbie goes on to say, neither myself, Sue, nor Iris were there. So I'm not quite sure to whom he was referring. Ouch. That's what I wrote. <laughs> In my own note, I just wrote, ouch. Ouch. Yeah. So his overprotective attitude faded towards her. Um, when she asked him about groupies, he said, as if I could, I'd probably have a fit. Hmm. Um, but he did admit that Bernard was in the habit of bringing girls back to the hotel room and f- for them both and pushing Ian to sleep with them. He made me do it. Yeah, so there's a good example of, remember I said earlier, of Ian really not taking responsibility Responsibility. for his own actions. On October 16th, 1979, at a show in Brussels, uh, that's in Belgium, he met Annick Honoré for the first time. Mm -hmm. The band um, had told Debbie about a chubby Belgian girl who was a tour manager, but Steve Morris said she was possibly a journalist. Um... Debbie was like, she definitely wasn't chubby and she worked for the Belgian embassy. (laughs) But in the movie, she uh, that's essentially how they portray her having a first conversation with Ian was that oh she just writes for a fanzine, but she wants to do an interview. Mm -hmm. And then in the movie, she's sitting there trying to interview the members of the band and they're all being very like they're being dickheads. And it was known that Joy Division gave really shitty interviews. Like, they wouldn't answer any questions. They'd be like, well, we just want people to listen to the music and figure it out for themselves. We're not going to tell you anything. Um, Anik had quite an influence on Ian and almost convinced him to become vegetarian. This is another relationship that was really, really, really romanticized in the movie. And I know a lot of guys who had seen that movie that were like, oh, my God, I'm so in love with the Anik character. She's just your perfect group, your perfect groupie. But really, when it when it comes to it, she was very controlling to him. Um she was even at a couple of gigs that Debbie was at, but Debbie didn't know about her. So she would just kind of be there watching what was um, going on. And I mean, we're so groupie positive in this. I'm not saying like, I don't mean to, it's just that this whole thing is depressing. Like the whole book, the whole situation. Things happen and they're all really young. People make mistakes in life. People do things at 20. They wouldn't do at 30. Yeah. I hear that. So they had hardly no money at this point, and like the dog could barely eat and was getting sick. So he Ian didn't really care if there was enough money for food, but he took money out of Debbie's wallet for cigarettes, anyways. Like that's what kind of guy he was. Um, in January of 1980, they went on a European tour, and while Debbie was barely able to like keep it together with their kids, Ian and well Joy Division was paying for Nick's accommodations. Um. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's mm-hmm. actually... <laughs> wow. Ian told his bandmates how unhappy his home life was and blamed a lot of things on Debbie, which made it seem like the relationship with Nick was justified. Um, again, girlfriends and wives were banned from shows and touring, but Nick didn't seem to fit into either one of these categories, and she was actually quite welcomed from the band. Right. Which is weird, because like when I think about... like, So one thing that they did, too, is they would book like two hotel rooms and everybody from the band would have to stay in one room and then Debbie and Anique would stay in the other room. Remember this was one... You mean Ian and Anique. Did I say Debbie and Anique? I wish. (laughs) That would have been nicer. Those two should have just been like, let's ditch this bozo. (laughs) So Ian and Anique would take one room. I remember there was this one time I was on tour with the band and um, we stayed at my friend Joel's house in his apartment and he only had one bedroom and it was his bedroom so when it was time for everybody to kind of go to sleep i was gonna sleep on the floor with all of the band but it was my first night that i had seen this guy since he came into town so i was kind of like can we take your room and bless him he was like okay so it's kind of a weird thing like okay all of the band you guys go here and we're just gonna go in this room and i find it interesting that the band was paying for anique like yeah. for their separate room, yeah. Um, when I've been on tour with bands as well, um, 
if if a band member wanted a separate room for whatever reason, like he was paying for it out of his for own sure. pocket. Yeah. Heck, I've even been like, you guys want some gas money? No. Um, they'd be like, no, Shanti, we got this. Your presence is payment enough. Exactly. Okay. So, um, soon enough, Debbie discovered a Nick's name and number in a notebook, and Ian admitted to it. At first, she accused him of being with another man. Did I mention in my notes earlier that he would take her to gay pubs? No. Okay, so you can see where I'm on a little bit about this kind of Interesting. stuff. Interesting. Um, but then they had a laugh about that, and he admitted to having affair with an affair with Anik. While his personal life was disintegrating, his career was flourishing and his voice was getting even better. Um, things got particularly cruel when all of the wives were invited to a show in London and Debbie said she couldn't afford to go to a hotel, uh, to a hotel but actually the hotel for the wives had been paid for and Ian just shrugged. So Debbie didn't go and um, she just used the money to pay the bills at home. Oh, man. Yeah, so Anik would continue to be on tour with him. I believe, it, like, even she, Anik was around when the other, the other wives were around. So now at this point, like, Debbie's kind of the one being left out. And it's just, like, an, emb- an embarrassing betrayal. Um, Anik had the nickname of the Belgian Boiler um, because she would just, like, yell at everybody all the time about <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, she got angry about them wanting to check into a brothel, like a hotel that also like was a brothel because it was immoral, but they're like, you're dating a married man. Yeah. So she would like blow up mm. at, at them. And supposedly ended it um, with her. Um, at one point. But... Like, not really. Yeah. Um, Ian was really giving a public display of his illness at this point, And it seemed that the sicker that he got, again, the more popular the band became. Um, Debbie didn't know the extent of Ian's inner tor- turmoil because she hadn't been allowed to listen to anything or read any lyrics since Unknown Pleasures. Wow, he really cut her out of everything. Huh? Yes. So Ian spent Easter with a Nick uh, that year. And then upon returning home to Debbie, he overdosed on his medication. The note that he left them was pretty terrible or that he left for Debbie was pretty per- terrible. Just said, no need to fight now. Give my love to a Nick. In hindsight, Debbie writes that um, suicide is five times more likely in people suffering from epilepsy. Plus with his manic oh, yeah. depression and all this stuff, it was just... Was there... Like, did... Was that expected? Like, did they, did it just happen so randomly or? Well, he had just come back from Easter with Anik and apparently they had been fighting a lot. Um, Debbie said that Ian's choice of Anik as concubine was disastrous as she was unable or unwilling to give him comfort after he'd had an epileptic fit. Her embarrassed rebuffs hurt him deeply. So that's definitely something that's different from the movie because there is a part in the movie where it seems that it shows that she's actually comforting him after a fit. Mm-hmm. Um, they continued to play shows tour took no breaks and uh, sometimes he would just say that he wanted to leave Joy Division and join the circus after the first overdose yep um, how did they did they pretend like it never happened pretty much and Ian was just like oh I was just like I was I just was wasted like I yeah. just I was just you know okay um I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, the video for Level Tear Us Apart came out in April 25th of 1980. Um, his relationship with Nick was reported at this time as Ian behaving like an... Obs- you can tell me if I'm saying this right. Obsequious. An obsequious an manner. Obsequious? Maybe obsequious. I spelled that wrong. Um, which means just obedient towards her. And she in turn ordered him around like an obedient dog. Um, he missed his first daughter or he missed his daughter's first birthday. And at this point, Debbie started to become very angry about Anik. She says she had a sexy accent, a job at the Belgian embassy and seemingly enough time to follow Joy Division around Europe. I wanted to ask, yeah, did Debbie at any point ever consider leaving him? Yes, but before they were married. Uh, And then, and then again, um, it's, we're getting here right now. She started talking about divorcing Ian. And one of her friends recommended waiting because they were just on the cusp of the kind of fame that brings in the real money. 
Because at this point, she's still not able to pay for shit. Yeah, and she has a daughter to take care of. So Joy Division played their final gig on May 2nd of 1980 at High Hall at Birmingham University, and they were set to fly out to America. Um, So as we're nearing the end, we know that all of this stuff kind of um, accumulates and augments what we want to call it uh, in in Ian's suicide. So Debbie said that um, the morning that she woke up before she went to go find Ian um, dead in their apartment, this is the end by the doors were playing in her head. She woke up and that was the song that was playing. So there's a lot of um, kind of supernatural things that... Yeah, they sort of have a connection. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she does describe finding him in the book, which just makes it all the more, like, sad and and heartbreaking. Um... Anique's tenacity was astounding, she says. She continued to call their house after he after died. After passed? Yeah. Why? Um, I don't know. It doesn't really explain did they, like, that. Did they chat? Wait, did they talk about it? She doesn't talk about that. That's interesting. It's like, really interesting. It's either like harassment or they actually connected somehow yeah when he died and he spent um days in the bed um that she shared with ian back at tony's place listening to closer over and over and over nonstop all day so this is what debbie says to kind of finish it off the release of closer brought with it a burst of realization for many of those already close to ian his intentions and feelings were all there within the lyrics while he lived they were equivocal but with hindsight all was disclosed when it was too late for anything to be done such a sensitive composition would not have happened by accident for me closer was ian's valediction and joy division's finest work Mm-hmm. He cajoled us, nurtured us with his promises of success. After showing us what it looked like, he offered us a mere sip before he abandoned us. He abandoned us on the precipice. Oh. Did he leave a note that time? He did. No. Yeah. Um, which was taken by the police, police officers, but then returned to her. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, do you know what Debbie was up to after? (gasps) Good question. Yeah, good question. I mean, besides writing the book, it's, um... She's not really a public figure anymore. No. Doesn't do much. And, yeah, I guess if she... Did I get anything, um you know from joy division because it all did go to her yeah because they never did go through with the divorce he'd asked her yeah. to reconsider he said like i do love you and all the stuff um so like i i really wonder how much off of those two albums and like this movie and all of this like how much Deb- debbie ever really received or if like the myth of this band or like the success of this band or it's almost just like a legend like their legend just yeah like, I, I wonder how much sales would have really been able to support her and her family. I think a lot. I yeah. mean, if he wrote all the songs, he got a part of that. And like you said, I mean, you walk downtown, you're bound to see someone with a Joy Division t-shirt on. or They... The, the when the film came out i'm sure there's another surge and hey listen to this um natalie curtis is 38 years old she is a photographer oh yeah so look look at these like pictures of her she's beautiful ah wow so there's an article about her 2007 natalie curtis daughter of joy division singer ian curtis went on set camera in hand to find out oh so she was initially i was dead set against visiting the set of control oh she went yeah interesting okay i'll link up this article with um with with our episode because it looks like it's uh really interesting yeah initially i was dead against 
visiting the set of control of the film about my father's life directed by photographer Anton Corbin. Although it took my mother's memoir, Touching from a Distance, as a starting point, books are read in private, whereas a film is something much more public and experience shared with an audience. When filming began in Macclesfield, I declined the opportunity to go. Macclesfield was somewhere I'd always associated with lush green rolling hills, and I didn't want to associate it with a film about my father's suicide. Gradually, my curiosity got the better of me, though. After all, I did study photography, and I am interested in film. Also, I felt that seeing the process would make it easier to watch the finished thing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's okay. good to know she's uh, an artist, too. Yeah. Cool. Okay, yeah, this article is cool. I'll definitely link it up. So that was our episode this week um, about the book Touching from a Distance, written by Deborah Curtis, Once the again, widow of Ian Curtis. It's always better to be the groupie than the wife. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Groupies have more fun, let's just say that. How that's, about that? That's true. I mean, we, wives we have should, fun, but mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. the groupies never have to deal with the other shit. Is that true? Well, they don't I mean, have to. Yeah, I'm sure you're some right. Do but. you're right. We should do. I wonder if we could come up with an episode, just like a mini of like at least five really successful rock and roll marriages. I'm sure we can. Even in Sharon, even Sharon and Ozzy split up not too long ago. I know, ago. and the the fact is, like, we never know what's going on inside a marriage. You know. We don't, unless you write a book about it. And then we do know, and then we podcast about it, and try our best to get the facts and all of the information right. Yes. And then apologize for talking about Instagram so much. Exactly. So that's it for today. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being listeners. We love you. We do. And see you next week. See ya. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.